Got time for a quick story. How would you have liked to have been on the roof of three Savile? Got time for a quick story. How would you have liked to have been on the roof of three Savile Row in downtown London when the Beatles were doing their rooftop concert? Being on the same roof as the Beatles. Uh, I think anybody who has heard the music of the Beatles and even kind of liked their music would probably answer yes to that question. It's a legendary moment in the history of music, period. Pop music, rock music, that is a moment. You say rooftop concert, everybody knows what that means. January 30th, 1969, when the Beatles go up on the roof of Apple Corps in downtown London and put on their concert. Ken Mansfield has been involved in the music industry for over half a century, and he was working at Apple at the time. And there he was up on the roof with the Beatles and others, and even the constables as they came on up. You can see him in the background, some of the photographs in the film. He was there. He wrote a book in late 2018 called The Roof, The Beatles' Final Concert. I did an interview with him in January of 2019 about that book. And then he got a hold of me in early 2020 about the then-pending 50th anniversary of the album Let It Be, which ultimately came from that, that time in January of 1969, May 8th, 1970, when the album finally came out. And so did another interview to talk about the 50th anniversary of what became Let It Be. So this podcast, you're going to hear both interviews with Ken Mansfield, first from January of 2019, talking about the book, The Roof, The Beatles' Final Concert, and secondly, my chat about the 50th anniversary of the album Let It Be, from May, that interview from May of 2020. Start now with that interview from 2019 about The Roof, the Beatles' final concert with Ken Mansfield. Well, we're talking today to Ken Mansfield. New book is The Roof, the Beatles' final concert. Came out in November, but it's celebrating something that is happening right about now. The 50th anniversary of The Beatles' rooftop concert. January 30th, 1969 was the date of the occasion. There were a few people that were on the roof. There wasn't room for too many, but Ken was one of those folks, was the Apple Records U.S. manager, was there that day. First, what, and your your description in the book of going back to three Savile Row in London and the just the the spiritual experience, if you will, it is a, try to sum it down to one word of of going there. This meant a lot to you. What made you decide to write a book about this singular event? Well, you know, like a lot of books, uh, people sometimes don't really want to write that book because it's a, a memory that's just hard to put on paper. But I've had so many people just insist that I write this book and. So I, I started writing a little bit, and once I started writing, it just started flowing because I realized what I really had was a point that nobody else had. I was up there that day. There was only a handful of us. And what I saw during my time with the Beatles, because I was there when we were setting up Apple from the beginning and you know through the whole thing up until the rooftop, was a very emotional, personal look at inside that none of the other books do that they're more concerned with the facts and the activities but there were real people inside that building and there the beatles themselves were uh, real people and so i just want the reader to walk in that building off of three saw row in, in the uh, mayfair district of london and get a feel for the area get a feel for the building uh go inside i've got pictures that nobody's ever seen inside the building with people working and to meet the, the Apple people, the Beatles themselves, and just walk them through that. My journey, that kind of a two-year journey from beginning with Apple, setting it up to the, to the rooftop as the climax. You mentioned the the uh, the the, the sim- kind of the simple moments, the the sort of the emotional moments, on, and the, the, some of it was on stage, some of it was within Apple Records. One in particular, or a couple that that stood out reading the book over the weekend. Were, were about the glances between Paul and John during the concert yeah. 
and Ringo, at, at, he was so kind of locked in on, on, on his drum parts that he was kind of able to gaze around and observe <laughs> the people that were on the fellow rooftops. So what are some additional, are there other moments that stood out from that time, maybe even particularly that month during that project that stood out that you kind of had to be there to see something and maybe struck you in a certain way? Well, you named probably the single most uh, touching moment. And for me, because, you know, I was, I'd worked with the Beatles from 1965 uh, till 1970 and then worked with them individually afterwards. But that day when we went up on the roof, it was a last minute thing. It's something we needed to do. We needed to get footage for the film and we were just running out of time. And here we had all these crazy ideas about going to a coliseum or, to Tunisia or to deserts or to flour mills. To, I mean, just crazy ideas one after the other. And uh, we never just could settle on one thing. And then it, we we had to footage for the film. We were running out of time. So somebody said, let's just go up on the roof. <laughs> so uh, that way we were able to lock the door downstairs. We didn't have to worry about transportation, hauling equipment, getting roadies and, you know, hotels and all that stuff. We just went up on the roof. And as you know, at that time in their lives, there was a lot of, uh, I'll use the word dissension. I don't know if that's the exact word, but uh, there was just a lot going down, uh, problems with Apple, with the individuals themselves, with uh, just the schedule they had been through. And so I was told later that when they got up to that door to go up on the roof, it was at that moment they actually finally decided to do it. And so they walked out there with a, just a lot of problems going on between them and everything. But when they started playing, and I'm, I'm about four to six feet away. I mean, I'm right almost in their face on this thing. When they started playing, Paul looked at John or John looked at Paul and was like, yeah, this is us. You know, Forget about all the other stuff to going down. This is who we are. This is who we've been. Uh, we're, we're mates. We've been through years of stuff. We've been places and done things nobody's done. And, and, uh, what we are right now is just, we're a good rock and roll band. And, uh, there was just that look between them that I was standing right there. And that's probably the most special thing, you know, I experienced with them was that moment. And, uh, they played that, you, you know, you watch the film and it's just like a fun concert. They're having a good time. And uh, I wrote something in the book that is now my favorite line. Uh, I said they went up on the uh, roof without a sound check, but they left with a soul check. Mm. A couple of what ifs that go in completely different directions. You mentioned that they finally made the call to go on right, right at the last minute. And you, and you refer in the book to them kind of in that holding area and, and, and the talk of yeah. some of them not wanting to necessarily go. And some of them like, all right, let's just go do it. It was what, what Lennon, yeah. in effect, said. But going two different paths here, one, scenario one, what if they'd said, yeah, screw it, we're not going to do it, let's go down, or they don't even bother with it, somebody doesn't show up that day, and the rooftop concert never happens, there's no concert, or they, and somehow the film project needs, needs to end. What is, the, what is the future there? Conversely, if the police don't show up, and they, how much longer would they have played, and is there an alternate history to the concert and maybe the ensuing weeks or months had they kept playing and kept playing? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> the one thing uh, you, you, you kind of uh, touched on is I stopped at the, uh, they were using one of the offices of the dressing room, and so I stopped on way up to give them a message uh, to George, I think, it was something like that, and they looked like they were nervous. They looked like they were a band, you know, rehearsing for an audition or something, which is funny what Lennon said at the end. And I thought that was what, because they hadn't played live for, you know, two years or something. But now I learned later, it was just the dissension that was in that room that was making them uptight and all that. Uh, you, the other thing you touched upon was the police. And they made a, everybody's made a big deal about the police coming up there and shutting him down. They were going to take him to jail and there was a chance they would be handcuffed and all this kind of stuff. And that's just totally over-dramatized. Uh, the police, you know, we'd shut this door downstairs. And, of course, the complaints start coming from Salvo Road because that's a street of, of uh, expensive tailors and bankers and, you know, very upscale, one of the most upscale streets in, uh, in London. And they started complaining because it was stopping traffic and things. And so 
the police did come, and Mal Evans, who was the road manager, uh, went down to the door and very gently talked to them, and he let a couple guys up. And before they got to the top of the, the building, their understanding was, uh, you're going to get to see the Beatles, you're going to get to be up close, uh, it's going to be a special thing, and just let us have some time to get done what we want to get done. And so they came up there, and you can see in the film that Mal is standing there just talking, chatting with one of the policemen. And it's almost like he turned to him and said, okay, uh, we got enough right now. Go ahead, you know, whenever you want, go shut us down, you know. And so I think uh, they pulled a plug on one of the amps or something like that. And, and uh, But it was just uh, it was two a policemen just being excited that he was there and he got to see the Beatles. So they, And here's the funny thing is uh, the stiffs down on the street thought that they had shut the thing down. But, uh, you know, because they complained, but actually uh, it, they, they didn't shut it down. I think the police would let us go on as long as we wanted to. Where, when did people start to, whether it's, whether it's you, whether it's your, your associates at the time and Apple, <laughs> people associated with the Beatles, when, did, when came a realization of the significance of, of the concert, I think you write to a degree like you you knew something was happening as it's happening, yeah. but in terms of historical context, we're fifty years later. We're talking. You say rooftop concert, everybody thinks Beatles. I, how long yeah. did it take for that to sort of sink in? Well, you know, uh, it actually was in a way another day at the office. There was so many exciting things going on in that building and with the Beatles and everything that this was just another day at the office to us. And uh, we got up there, and about halfway through the, uh, the show, or concert, whatever you want to call it, uh, start, I started getting this feeling like, wait a minute, something's going on here. And uh, it wasn't like I was having thought, oh, my gosh, this is the last time the Beatles are going to perform together live. Oh, my gosh, they're going to break up after this. Oh, you know, Apple's going to shut down or anything like that. It was just something was happening. And... Uh, so they left, and Chris O'Dell, who was Peter Asher's assistant, and Maureen Starkey, uh, Ringo's wife, and Yoko, uh, and I were the only four audience members up there. Everybody else had a job because there wasn't room or there wasn't enough, you know, he couldn't handle enough weight. So we were the only observers that weren't working that day. And we walked down those stairs, and nobody said a word to each other. And... Uh, went just to our offices and I've gotten a plane the next morning and something had happened and I just couldn't put my finger on it. And none of us really talked to each other about the, the thing you're describing, how historical it was, but we knew. And, uh, as it turned out, uh, we were sensing something that we didn't understand. And then we started really understanding as time went by. And most of us didn't really start writing about it or really sharing about it until maybe 20 years later or something. And I talked to uh, Chris the other day and uh, said, yeah, I don't know. Uh, we just didn't talk about it because we <laughs> didn't know what to say. <laughs> you know? right. So it was, an ex it was an extremely special moment. And in, at this time, uh, it is probably one of the most historical moments in rock and roll was the you know, the last time the Beatles played together, because it was really the end, the end or the beginning of the end or the foretelling of the end of, of you know, their breakup and and the, the, the loss of them to us as a group. What were the ensuing weeks and and months like working with the Beatles after this is done? Because that's the whole the whole filming project happens, the recording, and then it's done. And then I know there are attempts to get it out. It gets shelved. We know how the rest of 1969 and 1970 went. But from your perspective, working directly, I mean, working with the label, working in effect with the band, yeah. what were those? Get into February, get into March as it goes along. How was the dynamic from what you could gather? How did that change, if at all? It was a... a a workplace. Uh, there was a lot of just getting covers together, getting the artwork, getting uh, just getting things done. And the thing that uh, I didn't realize is, you know, they'd gone through the White Album uh, before this, and that turned out just to be the kind of the thing that really put a lot of stress on them because it was just such a monumental project, and they thought it was never going to get over. And there was dissension during that, and then. Then they turn around and start the Let It Be project, which was 
too big of a project. It was called Get Back Then because it was going to be a film. It was going to be uh, a concert. It was going to be an album and just all these things tied in. Uh, I think a, maybe a TV special or something. And uh, then they did The Roof, and they were in the middle of all this dissension, and that was going to be the next album, but it wasn't. The Let It Be album. And then after that, they do Abbey Road. And that album sounds like the most beautiful Beatle album as far as a band. You can't, you can't sense there's anything wrong. They really back to their great concepts for an album. Uh, and then they broke up. So uh, it, was, it was a business, and there's jobs to be done. There were people in there, and everybody took their, their work seriously, and they partied seriously, <laughs> too. But, um, you know, you got to keep going when you got a company and there's responsibilities and there's commitments. You, you still have to keep going. And also you're trying to make money. So, um, I don't know. For me, it was like everything was going along the same thing. Cause I was back in America most of the time. So I wasn't seeing maybe some of the personal stuff that was going down, you know? So when you were at Apple, in, 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 and let's yeah. get right to about that time of, of January 69, you mentioned what, what a day was, you kind of allude to what a day was like there, both in terms, in the <laughs> book, both in terms of, oh, it's, you know, it's another day. You mentioned the rooftop, con- well, yeah. that was that was another day. And yet you talk yeah. about the hangers on and all the weird stuff that would be going on <laughs> on a regular day. So describe what, what would be a regular day in January of 69 working in Apple. If someone is in your shoes, what are they going to see? Well, you know, I talk about the area, the very stuffy England area. So you walk off, uh, you walk up those little stairs into the building and you're on Salvo Row. And the minute you open that door, it's like walking into a a movie set with 10 movie sets, 10 movies going on at one time because it's just like chaos. And of course, Derek Taylor would be there, who was the, uh, head of their publicity and all that, and very became very legendary. Uh, he just had people gathered in his office all the time. There was Cristal, Champagne. Oh, you, you're hungry. They had a Cordon Bleu chef, you know, on call for anybody who wants something. Uh, the Hells Angels may be there, you know. Uh, then the next thing, you'll see some Hare Krishas chanting someplace. Uh, next thing you know, there's a famous movie star in there. Uh, uh, they're... Paul's working on this new idea. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, it was just, you didn't know from moment to moment. And I had four bosses. So if John said something and then Paul told me to do something opposite, uh, I had to stand there in the middle of this and figure out how do I, you know, how do I work with both these people without alienating one of them? And uh, my instructions from Capital that no matter what, I had to keep it together with the Beatles. Mm-hmm. So it was a, I, you know, that's the thing I never really thought that much about. I had the greatest job in the world there, the most fun job in the world, but I had so much responsibility that if part of me couldn't really just, you know, go with it as much as I wanted to because I had to get things done and had to make sure everybody was happy and everything was okay between the U.K. and the United States. So uh, that was part of the excitement. Uh, then next next thing you know, you're oh they're going to show you a special screening of Magical Mystery Tour. Everybody's going to get together and watch that. Uh, I, I just it's just it was it was madness and it was chaos. And I think out of the chaos is where a lot of the creativity came because everybody was just on this super uh, creative high all the time. You you refer to all the creative options for that final concert location, and it's such a myriad. I mean, re- reading the flour mill was was one of the more. I had to wrap my head around that for a few seconds. I had to stop and go. A flour mill? Okay. I know. Um, the Yoko's. And, and my comment, my comment was that everybody should come with uh, flour in their hair. Right. From <laughs> the San Francisco thing. You know? Right. And then Yoko's idea of what what was it uh, of being in an empty. Vet amphitheater, you know, that that whole kind of different perspective. So let's say everyone came to you and said, all right, yeah. Ken, you're going to make the call and whatever you say is going to go. What would your choice have been for a final concert location, if any? The original uh, thing I heard about this, and I think that would be my choice, uh, is they were going to book a club in Germany and list the band playing there as the next Beatles. And it was this, a club that was going to seat about 200 people. 
And uh, so then when it came time for showtime, they would shut the doors, you know, lock the doors, everybody be in, in the club. And then the actual Beatles would walk out and do this concert. Uh, this would be the perfect setting and uh, it would give, you know, everybody would go crazy. And uh, it just was really a cool, cool idea, I thought, for the final footage. But uh, you couldn't keep the secret. So no matter how hard you tried, people would find out. You just, I mean, you got a building of a lot of people and the word's going to get out someplace, you know. And I think that's part of the part of the problem. Either the ideas were too big and too massive or too hard to uh, to keep a secret. I mean, I'll tell you uh, how crazy it was. Mal Evans uh, called me from London and said, hey, Ken, uh, we're looking for an idea to do the final concert. The Beatles have asked me, meaning Mal, to check out the Sahara Desert and want me to call you to check out an American desert. And we're thinking about setting up in a desert someplace and inviting every kid in the world to come for a free concert. Now, uh, as a businessman, I don't think you'd want to underwrite that <laughs> insurance on it. Right. Uh, number, number two, I would challenge you to get enough porta potties out there, you know, <laughs> for something like that. And also the fact that probably half the kids wouldn't make it back alive, you know, but so that's how far fetched some of the ideas were. But I just think I like that idea of surprising people in a closed environment and uh, letting them people just get to see, you know, like a, a club with 200 people. So everybody's up close. Just see this concert. I just thought that was the best idea. Last question. That was the first first idea I heard. It sounds it's a sounds like a heck of an idea if it could have worked. La yeah. Last question for yeah. you with all of the repackagings repack okay. we've seen. We've seen the Sgt. Pepper yeah. repackaging, the White Album repackaging that came out back in November, and I would have to imagine that there will be more coming out with all these 50th anniversaries, and there will be more to to come, etc. Well, let it be. The movie has. Has not come out. I correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was on video cassette in the '80s was the last release, and I I actually only saw the movie, and I've been following the Beatles from pretty much my whole life. I'd never seen the movie until I found a rogue copy on YouTube the other literally the other day. I finally found yeah. it. Um, yeah. So when do you think there should be a repackaging of the whole? experience the the recordings the 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 concert all of the film footage with there's hundreds of hours of film footage from the whole originally get it get back project what what do you think should should that happen and if so what should be prioritized in such a release of content well every every one of us that were involved you know during that time just expected Apple to like really make this a biggie for them to like uh, rumors about, you know, um, re-editing the film. And uh, I know Paul had always felt that he had wanted to have it be a more positive side instead of so much, you know, slant towards the negativity and stuff. And to do a repackaging and uh, remastering and all, all this kind of stuff. And uh, during these last few months, we keep checking with her. Well, have you heard anything from Apple? No. And, uh, now I understand uh, that they're not going to do anything special, but they're going to do some stuff next year concerning this. But it just, after what they did on the White Album and what they did on Sgt. Pepper, we were all kind of surprised. And even in my book here, uh, Apple's always, you know, because I was one of the original people there, have always been very kind in letting me use pictures and stuff. And they wouldn't let me use some of the pictures I wanted to use this time because they said, well, no, we in case we want to do something, we want to reserve these pictures for ourselves. Hmm. Now, they're in my previous book, the ones, and you can go online and see the pictures under my website. But, uh, yeah, right now as it stands here, I just think it's going to be a celebrated event without any big fault or all, unless at the last minute they surprise us all. But right now, nobody knows of anything hmm. that they're doing. That's in, my, in, my, in my small circle of friends, none of us have found out you know, well, what they're going to do. Hopefully we see something more come out. It would be so fascinating yeah. to hear everything, yeah. see everything, remaster everything would be so great. Well, we have your memories. We have the book, and I would very strongly <laughs> recommend anyone read it. It's it's a it's a book that I flew through in a weekend. It normally takes me a while to get through books, but it was fascinating enough, and I learned stuff, uh -huh. and I hope anyone listening to this conversation decides to go read it as well. Yeah. The, 
It was a good job on the book. The book, once again, the title is, and I'll bring it right up here, The Roof, The Beatles' Final Concert, already available. So go buy it and and uh, read it just in time for the 50th anniversary for any listener. Ken, thank you so very much for uh, talking to us today. Thank you so much. I had a great time. Good interview there with Ken Mansfield on The Roof, The Beatles' final concert. Again, that interview was in January of 2019. Now the interview from May of 2020 on the 50th anniversary of the release of Let It Be. Talking again to Ken Mansfield on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of Let It Be, which is is May 8th, which is a Friday, and we're doing this interview the day before the 50th anniversary of the release of the album. Let it be, of course, Ken Mansfield's been quite a, quite close to the Beatles at about that time. He's released a, a numerous books, Beatles, The Bible, and Bodega Bay, The White Book, but The Roof was the occasion where I, where I talked to you, Ken, obviously back in the beginning of 2019 when that book came out about the final concert and your time in Apple, and it's, it's a great read, and I would recommend it to anyone who's a Beatles fan to kind of get uh, the color of what it was like being there at that time. So I'm going to start with the, the broadest question as long as we're on the occasion of the 50th anniversary, and that being how what would be your statement, your overall opinion of the entire Let It Be project? I mean, not just the album, but everything that went into it, the, the, the documentary, everything. What would you, how would you, Termit 50 years later. Wow, you're right. That is a broad question, and I'm going to have probably a broad answer. And uh, you can stop me when you want to. But it's funny that with that broad question, the answer is simple, and yet it's very complicated because that was such a unique time <clears throat> with the Beatles. Can you, if you, I want to go back just a bit, is the fact that prior to Let It Be, they had recorded the White Album. I mean, just, you know, not that long before. Then they're doing the Let It Be album, and which in part of that was Abbey Road songs were done during that time. And then the Let It Be album was the next to the last album they recorded, but it was the last album they released, and Abbey Road was the last album they recorded, and the next, to, well, you know what I mean, uh, was just how that band could do write and create and record that many songs or be doing that many songs over a really rather, you know, <clears throat> short period of time. And then on top of that, it was uh, just so confusing with what was going on with Apple, what was going on with the members of the bands themselves. With, uh, I mean, it was probably, I would say, with that 68 to end of 69 period, there was probably more activity, more drama, more <laughs> everything in the Beatles' life than ever before. And for me, that was really the center of my um, involvement with them. So I was there, I think, in probably the most, <laughs> I don't know, phenomenal portion of their career. Do you... Th- it's, I thought of this question a little earlier today, and it's something that I, I had never thought of before, and that's... I mean, my gosh, basically all my life I've been following Beatles music back to when I was probably about two, three, four years old. And obviously that was after the Beatles had broken up, but still my entire life. And I'd never thought, but I'll ask your opinion, having been there at the time and talking about all the activity, would it have been better for the Beatles career or how would you eval- or how would you describe how the Beatles career would have gone had they taken a break? After the White Album, obviously they wouldn't have gone out on tour and done the usual promotional thing because that's not what they were doing. But had they instead decided, all right, let's take like four or five months off and then come back in the studio and do our roots, whatever we want to do. Do you think that would have been better? Would that have led to a different outcome? How would that have gone? Well, I guess textbook wise, uh, the answer would be yes, they probably should have. But I don't think things were really... um, in their control at that point because of the way their lives were going. Um, now, this is all you've asked me a question I've never really thought about. My personal opinion is, is that Paul saw things fragmenting and that he really thought to go into the Let It Be project 
was a way to hold things together, to hold the band together. Um, because a really the big part, the main part of that concept was to return to their roots, to be alive, you know, give the people the live thing. And so I, I was there in the studio with them for parts of that. And their whole idea was just to start kind of writing and recording and rehearsing and noodling with the songs and do things live. But um, I think it was just too much. And I think especially, you know, John's and Yoko's involvement at that time. And George uh, was getting pretty disenchanted with uh, so much work. And there was so many, it was supposed to be a film, it was supposed to be a, a documentary, it was supposed to be a record, it was supposed to be a, I don't know what all it was supposed to be. And George just was funny, you know, said, let's just, let's just do like one thing, you know, let's, let's make a record. It was just too much stuff. And I was with George in LA uh, really shortly before that, because after they finished the White Album, and he said that the White Album was just um, too much. He said, we took on just a too big a project, and he just wanted to get it over with. So I was there when he mastered the White Album in, uh, in Hollywood. But I just don't think um, there was something, like was the word stream rolling or like a tumbleweed that was rolling along, and there was really no way to kind of stop it. And I think maybe that was Paul's effort to try and control it to do, make something out of it because I think he felt the, the group was really fragmenting at that time. So would he, do you think there would have been a, a, a better way to do this back to the roots project, understanding all that. And we, we talked about it in the last interview about all of the ideas of going to a club in Germany and being the new Beatles. And then of course, all the grandiose ideas of the Sahara, which is kind of getting away from the roots in maybe the most dramatic way, but still, if this was the thing where they wanted to pull everything back together and just be a four-piece band, would would there have been a more effective way of do that? And maybe it's kind of a playoff of the last question of take a break, breathe a little bit, calm down, and then come back and and do this project. What what do you think would have from from your observation of all the dynamics of that time in early '69 and even late '68? You think there's a better way they could have pulled that off? Well. Um... <laughs> Anytime I'm asked to think in the Beatles' minds what they were go- were going to do or should do, I I realize I'm out of my league. But <laughs> I think I think it comes back to the thing that uh, my previous answer to where Paul was trying to hold things together because there you know there were problems uh, going into that already, and then tweaking them when they went into it was a real bad situation for them. And uh, I just don't think it was the kind of thing that he really thought out like, okay, here's a point A and we'll go to point B. Then we'll uh, take some time between point B and point C and then we'll do, you know, I just think it was, uh, it was a momentum that um, was just headed. And I think Paul wanted to keep the group together. Paul wanted to actually go back out on the road again. Um, You know, but Lennon especially was getting disenchanted with the group. And I don't George, spiritually or whatever you want to say emotionally was having problems just hanging with the group like that and uh, their lives had separated so much and what their personal lives and their musical directions were so uh i don't know probably if i was to look back at it, i would say yeah paul you better try and hang you know keep it together best you can because this this thing's starting to fall apart <laughs> personal opinion now right um <laughs> You mentioned earlier in our in our chat about all the activity that's going on, and, and I, I know uh, albums came out a lot more, like full projects came out more frequently. I mean, now you have, I mean, my gosh, I think there was a rapper the other day I, I saw has like the number one or number two album in the country, but he just released a new album in March, and he had another one this past October because of the simplicity of uploading stuff, quick recording, quick getting up, but it's a different industry than 50 years ago. Back then, that's the whole process was happening at a at a in retrospect it's a remarkably accelerated pace in all your years in the music industry can you can you describe a comparable 
artist or band that was moving at that fast of a pace and trying all these different projects. I, I know in maybe Paul's case, he was he was pushing that because he had to do something, like we were saying. But can you think of another band or another singer who was doing so much so quickly and putting out all this product? You know, that's, uh, that's in reverse answer to that question. Um, the Beatles were so unique and they were so ahead of the curve the whole time that you can't really compare them to somebody else because nobody had set a um, standard like they had of, of coming out with something constantly new, constantly di- different. Uh, the way they the recording techniques, um, the, the, the artistry, the way the band worked together. Um, I don't think there was ever a band like that. And so they were in so far ahead of the curve that you can't really compare them to somebody because there were times that they were very much of four guys doing one time and times that they really got into creative things where they would layer things. Uh, They did do a lot of uh, recording uh, very live in a way and the fact that they just didn't go in and uh, use the technology today that you're referring to, to where they could sing a song uh, out of tune or miss some things and have it auto-corrected with the equipment, you know. So everything they got, they had to get. And they had to get in a very complicated manner compared to today because they were recording on on four-track and then later on eight-track, where now you have as many tracks as you want, you know. Mm-hmm. And so they had to think about when they did something that they were combining it with something already recorded. And so they had to get it right. They couldn't. There was no correction other than just what you do in, you know, altering the sound and adding the echo and effects like that. So, uh, I think also how many bands are that prolific in the wider writing where you have Lennon McCartney, who were probably the, the greatest songwriting team of all time. You know, I, I put these guys up with Mozart and Beethoven and stuff as far as how history will treat the the body of work they they. Uh, created there are multiple versions obviously of the album as it was being assembled and mixed and essentially drafted throughout 1969 getting into 1970 and yeah. i mean it, it's it's tricky trying to like i've struggled trying to keep up with okay what was supposed to be the definitive well there there, there wasn't i mean there was the the may 69 version there was another version yeah. of get back and then finally comes out of let it be and then of course yeah. fast way forward to 03 and let it be naked comes out which is what was paul's kind of take on what he thought it should have been so of all of these versions wh- what do you think should have been maybe the definitive ultimate version of this project i won't even call it let it be because it had different album titles you know i'm glad you asked that this is one of the most confusing uh, I can't remember what songs were on the album or what songs were on the roof or what songs, because it was so many different versions. There were songs on one version that weren't on another version. And uh, But I'm glad you asked that question because there was a definite, simple concept for that album. And Paul, I keep using Paul because he always seemed to be kind of the leader of things, whether some people agree who was a leader, but that album was supposed to be a live album. And that's what the concept was. It was supposed to be kind of ragged in a way, uh, just a real honest type thing. And especially when I, I would walk in the studio and you, the uh, control room would have piles of, of uh, two, you know, two inch reels of tape and the tape machine was going all the time because what he wanted to do, or they wanted to do, was work on things, rehearse, rehearse things, you know, keep doing the songs and then just nail one because Paul would stop, uh, uh, you know, t- tell the uh, control room, stop, I want to hear that. And they would go in and, and listen to take it and it would be the kind of thing, okay, yeah, that's it. So that was a concept, very pure, very clear, very simple. And then they got disenchanted with the whole thing and it put it on a shelf for a while. And then Phil Spector comes in. And as George Martin said in one of my favorite quotes of all time, that the album was produced by George Martin, overproduced by Phil Spector. And uh, so Phil does all this stuff on the album, and Paul, 
just hated it. And uh, so that was that. And then years, and it was years later, I was it six or so years later that Let It Be Naked came out. And when I heard that, Luke, I honestly got tears in my eyes because, boy, it put me right back in the studio, put me right back sitting against the wall uh, next to Billy Preston and hearing the album as it was meant to be. So uh, I just think the album got recorded as an album and never really came out the way it was intended until Let It Be Naked. Hmm. Um, when the album did officially arrive, May eighth, yeah. nineteen seventy, we have a, we have a version. And listening to it again today, I just wanted to kind of set the mood, if you will, before the interview. And listening through it again, I'm kind of struck by. And again, this is an, an album I've heard for for decades, but you kind of look at it in a new way, and you think. Wait a sec. We're going from all these songs, these roots songs from the, I keep saying roots, but I mean, it's that, that was the essence of it. This whole four on the floor, back in the studio, and then suddenly veer to the left, here's Across the Universe, which is really, I mean, that's yeah. pre-India. It's, it's, I mean, even John's voice still has that kind of 1967 sound, because you could even tell how his voice evolves even, almost year by year. It was changing. And then suddenly there's 180 degrees in the other direction, and you have I Me Mine in in the track order. And so now we're onto a song that's post Abbey Road, almost sounds like a George Harrison solo song, and then veers right back into the rest of the album. So, what do you, knowing that some of those songs were in some of those versions of the final album in early 1970, I know they had been included, but what did you think when it comes out and those songs are on there. The Spectre mixes are on there. What do you think of this final prod product when you first hear it? I uh, Okay, now this is blasphemy. I know that. I admit it. Uh, I personally didn't care for the album that much, even though it's such a great experience for me, and I like the songs. I like the band. I love, it, you know, love them all. But for me, the album felt disjointed because, uh, of course, you have things like, you know, Let It Be on there which is back in the McCartney, for lack of a better comparison, yesterday type style. And then you have these, see, now I can't remember, like we have like Dig a Pony and mm-hmm. all these kind of things on there. So it just was a lot of individuality to me instead of um, a band, you know, a solid band thing. And like uh, Cross the Universe, which is interesting, uh, John Lennon gave me an acetate of that when I first came over to London to work with them, and he gave it to me. He's just like, here, here's something nobody's heard or just want you to have it. And uh, yeah, I think he had done it for a charity or something that wasn't really intended to be a, a band album song or something, whatever. And I'm not even sure that the original thing he did on that wasn't basically what happened, what ended up on the album. Um, so for me, Coming out of the White Album, which again seemed like it was a lot of individual efforts and not as much band efforts at times, and into this one, um, that period, I didn't care as much for when, like, when Abbey Road came back out. Yes, you know, here they are again, and I've always said that I didn't feel like the Beatles did a concept album. On, uh, during that time like they did with all the other albums and I realized later that yeah, they did, they had a very definite concept in there and it was the, the individuality and the and the oddness of the, just the sequence you put out the kind of songs they did so um, I just didn't understand their concept <laughs> <laughs> What would be your favorite song from the from the final album? And and maybe and, and I'll I'll say this kind of a two part thing. Final song on what we know as Let It Be, and maybe your favorite song, how it should have been, maybe if it wasn't specterized or remixed or however. I just like Don't Let Me Down, and uh, as I'm saying that, I can't remember which which album it was on. I mean, which version it was on. I see. I'm I'm looking through lists, and it was on. It was like on all the lists, right up all the versions up until the final version. So it didn't make the final cut. I think it ended up on past masters in terms of an actual album where 
I don't remember if it was on Hey Jude or if that came up beforehand, but but yeah, it it was. I mean, yeah, it was it was supposed to be, and then didn't make the final cut. Yeah, and that was the one that to me I just really enjoyed on the roof. <laughs> right. Maybe, and that's maybe that's part of it that um, it was just a fresh sound. I know it's a, not a masterpiece, maybe, but to me, I just. I just felt them in that song, I guess. I don't know. It was a John Lennon song, right? Mm-hmm. All the way, I think. There were a lot of other songs that didn't make the final cut, and there were a lot of songs they were demoing. And, of course, that was that was a Beatles thing, obviously. But I, I believe Junk had been worked on around that time, which, of course, ended up on McCartney, and we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of that, which I know that, I mean, I've always loved that song, both versions of it on the, on the solo album. Are there any other songs you would have liked to have seen that the Beatles were working on that maybe you heard of, oh, they're working on this or whatever, that you wish would have maybe been fully developed and put on this album on on what became Let It Be in 1970? Um, These are going to be strange observations because I think uh, there was a point in this that maybe George was holding back material for his solo album whenever it was going to be. And... uh, I think um, Abbey Road maybe would have not been Abbey Road if they hadn't done these songs and, and hashed them out during the Let It Be time. Um, you know, it's hard to think inside of the minds of, and there were so many different people kind of involved at this time, whether it was George Martin or Glenn Johns or, or Phil Spector or, or the individual Beatles and stuff. Uh, I almost would hate to be in the room when they were deciding these things, and I'm sure in some cases some of them weren't in the room when mm-hmm. things were decided. Uh, I just can't second guess that. These are these are pretty tough questions, Luke. Um, <laughs> it's really trying to, you know, I could observe things, and I had a lot of personal feelings about it, what was going on, but uh, it was was never a technical thing with me. It was just an emotional thing. Always, my memories, because this is, you know, 50 years ago, is the things I remember are not what songs were on what album or what or this or that. It was kind of like the emotion of what was, what were they like at that time? What was happening in their lives? Uh, the simple things surrounding it. And then just favorite songs that just, you know, come along. I loved how George, his songwriting and his guitar playing I, he's a, the guy in the band to me that really developed and evolved more than anybody. Ringo was rock solid from, you know, I mean, he got better too as a drummer, but he was always in the pocket. And and John and, and Paul were consistent, in, even in their just creativity and the new things, they were still consistent. But George is the one that seemed to um, really evolve into something, and he came out of it right at the right time. So when he started doing his solo albums, and well, and look at look at uh, something. Mm-hmm. I think I'm not sure about this. I think maybe he kind of wanted that for his his own album. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I, I know we we actually on the radio just played All Things Must Pass side one. We do a feature every week where we play a, a classic album side. And we played All Things Must Pass, and yeah, I'm, it, it, that's a curiosity of what was he holding back and what what could have been on a Beatles album and what that could have sounded like. I mean, of course, you end up with Abbey Road and you get Here Comes the Sun and something and two mind-blowingly classic songs beyond just Beatledom. That's getting into overall excellence. Yeah, in fact, you're talking about Abbey Road, you know, and what are some of the best songs on Abbey Road? Uh, A couple of them are George Harrison songs. And then there's these dynamic things that Paul came up with. it was just an amazing album because they, I felt they got back together as a band and they were spreading around the, uh, you know, the, the melodies and lyrics with each other. So songwriting. On the idea of, as you mentioned, of, of the overall, I mean, kind of the, the vibe, the emotion around, around all of this and getting into popular culture when, when the album come, not just when the album came out, but over the past 50 years, do you think popular culture and people's opinions of this album and of the band have properly evaluated the artistry of it? Has it been underrated, overrated? What, what's kind of your sense of how other people have taken it compared to someone like you who was actually 
in the building with them as they were working on this stuff? I think at first that we were so amazed at what they were coming up with that I think it was a gut emotional response to this band. Uh, there was something different about these four characters. And, you know, you never, when a band uh, loses, changes membership, uh, they just bring in another guitar player or something. The Beatles were the Beatles. You just can't picture it any other way. They were those four guys. And I think our reaction to them in the beginning was having this, this four entirely different people that just had an appeal. I think if Ringo hadn't been the drummer that ended up being the drummer for the band, I don't think the band would have been the same, even though people don't give him as much importance. There was a chemistry there and something that appealed to so many people. Now, that was, I think, a more emotional time and response to their product. And I think as time went on, I think we started realizing just how intellectual and how uh, creative and how uh, adept they were at doing things and coming up with things. I think we started um, respecting them more. And so we still loved the emotion of the thing, but I think we had something on that that was beyond uh, just a band that you really liked. You know, you, you started thinking with them. You started going, my gosh, you know, as a producer, I'd go, how did they do that? You know, and as songwriters, we learned, wow, Paul, rhyme, Paul writes songs that don't rhyme, but they rhyme, <clears throat> you know, and uh, <clears throat> just so many things that they brought that we'd never done before. Uh, their multi-track, multi-track recording that they did was just amazing. The way they took the equipment they had at a time and linked them together and just did things that nobody ever thought of. And then they, here they are, a good down cavern type rock and roll band, and they have George Martin there putting the classical effects and he could hear and understand what they maybe didn't understand themselves or wanted to do, but he's the kind of person that could look at it intellectually and say, we could accomplish this this way, you know? And, uh, so you know, I can't remember what the question was in a way, but, uh, I said before, I think they will in time become the Mozarts and Beethoven's and Rachmaninoff's and et cetera be greatly respected for their for their musical ability. I imagine that the Peter Jackson project, the Beatles Get Back, is going to help with the legacy of this, of the overall project. I mean, I guess in one way it says, well, they're fixing it. Well, on the other hand, it's finding, I believe the essence of this is to look at all the film and show what was really going on from a from a film standpoint and all of, all of that footage that was put together. What are your thoughts on the Beatles get back, which hopefully is going to come out on September 4th. I always say hopefully with anything in the next few months, you never know if it's going to be pushed back. But but what are your thoughts on the Peter Jackson project? Well, uh, my guess, by the way, I think it might be pushed back uh, because of just everything in the film industry is being pushed back. I hope the date holds. But Michael Lindsay Hogg um, criticized for the darkness and negativity of the film he did. But at the same time, I think he was really more of a reflection of the times and the craft and what was cool at that time. So I think he uh, he did a very artistic thing with the film and I didn't really care for it, but I, I admired him as a, uh, as a director and what he, what he did from his standpoint, the Peter Jackson thing, and this has become very clear is that he is taking a lot more material and looking at it in depth. And he has all the advantages of the technology of today. And the fact that uh, he's also, you know, he makes explosive films, mm-hmm. make monumental films. And here he has a mon- monumental band and a monument from a monumental time in our history. And I think he's going to do something and just knocks our socks off. And it's being called a documentary, but I think it's going to be almost an epic film. And my understanding is that uh, what he's able to do uh, with the technology and stuff is just going to bring stuff to life with what he's going to be able to do with color and everything. And the fact is that Paul and Ringo are very outspoken about how they like this because it seemed like he has really picked up on the more positive aspect, which I think most of us felt 
was the thing that was missing in Michael Lindsay Hogg's film. That I think he's going to make a, a much more, uh, not happy is not the word, but a more, just more fun to watch movie, a more interesting. Uh, I think it's going to show more of this, uh, more of the Beatles, what they're like. I, I say this because I am criticized a lot because they say all my writing is so positive about the Beatles and how I just treat everybody so nice. But all the time I was with them, I started working with them in 65 and 66 and then ended up, uh, even after I left Apple at the beginning of 70, I ended up working with them in different levels later on. And I never saw any of that dark side and, uh, I just uh, saw a lot of just fun and happiness. Now I'm, you know, I know the other stuff went on, but it never did in my presence, and that's my view of them. And I think Peter Jackson is going to concentrate on that. I am just can't wait to see this film. The other thing I'm curious about with this release is if this is when we'll get the 50th anniversary remastering of. Let it be, or do they repackage it as get back kind of what they did with the White Album and Abbey Road and Sgt. Pepper's? Curiously, not Magical Mystery Tour, though I, I guess I can see why. And I'm actually more curious why they haven't done it with Rubber Solar Revolver, but but that's beside the point. In the last interview, I remember you had mentioned when we were talking about putting together the 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 roof that Apple had, unlike previously, not allowed you to include some photographs. And wondering if there, you know, I think at that point we were talking about would there ever be some sort of a 50th anniversary project for Let It Be? And this was before the Peter Jackson project was announced. Does all this happening kind of make you wonder if that is the plan to do a 50th anniversary of the, I mean, now we're passing the the date, the release date, but this this documentary mean we're going to be hearing a lot more of that music and kind of getting like you got to the, the spirit of, of the entire sessions and get, get an inside peek there. You think that's their plan? Very definitely. Uh, and he, he said in his own interviews that he has hours and hours of untaped. I mean, of uh, recording audio recordings and visual recordings, things like that. And he's really gone through these things and has given us a lot of fresh things here. Um, I even heard a comment, I think it was from him, he might include the whole rooftop segment in the in the film, which would be 42 minutes, so that'd be kind of hard to imagine, but I know he's going to just bring a lot of fresh material, and you know, his creativity, uh, it's going to be like Phil Spector put his, you know, touch on the uh, Let It Be album, whatever you want to call it, and uh it changed things a lot. And I think Peter Jackson is such a great mind and great uh, director and stuff that he's, I think he's just going to bring something to life. You know, you saw the movie yesterday and uh, mm-hmm. I usually don't care for any of these movies uh, that's not, you know, real life about the Beatles, but I loved it because there was a definite, really cool concept there. And it didn't try to pretend to be something it wasn't. And uh, I just think, uh, in a way, Peter Jackson is going to have all the material he needs to work with to just really bring something special about. One more question for you. Okay. As, as long as we're talking about the uh, what was the end of the Beatles and the, the, with the breakup having been announced or essentially <laughs> being made clear a month before Let It Be. So it, the thing that most people would think about then is, well, what could have happened next? And we know, uh, we know how history was written. But from your observation of, of the band, and you've reiterated this in the book, in both, of, in both of these interviews about how they, I mean, they did get along. It's not like they all hated each other collectively. That's that, there, I think that there's a casual view of that, and that's not correct. Do you think there could have been if, and I'm maybe throwing like three or four what ifs into this, which is a dangerous thing to do and a complicated thing to do. But do you think there is some scenario where if, Maybe they'd taken extra time off while they were still the Beatles or had taken a different legal approach or management approach in the early 70s. You could even throw in the what-ifs of Mark David Chapman doesn't happen. All of that. Is there some scenario where you think all four could have gotten back together in a room and said, you know what, let's let's just do some stuff or do some performing and maybe not become the Beatles again? Or maybe they are whatever you think that is. Do you think something like that could 
have ever happened again? You know, I got to tell you how interesting your question is, because as you're asking the question, I'm thinking of my answer. And then as you as you kept talking, you kept giving my answer. (laughs) I uh, I think that if uh, the death of John Lennon didn't occur, of course, and uh, uh, I think if they would have you were talking about taking a break from each other for a while, I think if they would have broken up at let's say when they did break up, that in time they would have uh, got the freedom of going their separate way for a while. And then I think they would have come back together very naturally. Um, And it could have been a few years, it could have been quite a few years, but I think they would have come back and the magic would have been there. I think it would have been good that they took a vacation from each other. Uh, I think the camaraderie from what I saw would be everlasting and the talents would be everlasting. And I think getting back together would probably uh, excited them more than it did us in a way, because they were just what they created together. Um, I just, uh, I really think uh, it was, that was what it was going to be. And the John Lennon thing was just, um, you know, when John, John was killed, it was uh, something was robbed from all of us because we all had that, dream of the Beatles getting back together someday and the dream as I said earlier you just don't replace the guitar player in the Beatles Mm -hmm. Beatles were the Beatles so I think something was really robbed from us that would have been so dynamic someday and you know some of the great bands that have broken up like many years gotten back together again and Mm -hmm. resolved all their problems and stuff and we were that we were robbed from that the day on the roof because um, I hear it was, I was just a few feet away and I was in the offices and I was, you know, around things during the recording of the album and stuff. And there was a lot of dissension going down. There was a lot of tension. There were a lot of problems. I mean, they were having their own things about the direction of their own songwriting and things like that. And they had wives and, they, and the Apple thing was just turned into a really horrible thing at times in some ways and Klein comes in and um, they their breakup to me was such a natural evolution I mean bands are together while they break up that's what bands do eventually and they've been together you know longer than most bands and sucks I mean you got stones you can't compare anything to the stones yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but uh, I just think that was natural people have said that Yoko broke up the band and I think they give her way too much credit I think there was all these other elements in there and uh, I just that day on the roof when uh, they got and I was told later that they almost didn't even come up through the door that they were in the stairwell there and they didn't come up almost didn't go through the door and then John said something like well let's yeah come on let's just go do it and they came out there amidst all this turmoil and they uh, started playing and something just happened. It was strange because uh, John looked at Paul and Paul, you can look, see in the film, they looked at each other. It was like they were saying, yeah, you know what? It doesn't matter what's going on with us now. It doesn't matter all this stuff. This is who we are. We're a live cooking rock and roll band. We've been together for years. We've done a lot of incredible things. And uh, you know what? This is who we are. And I, I'm, of everything, I've written seven books, and of everything I've ever written, the one line I wrote in the roof that knocks me out the most of anything I've written was the fact that they came up on the roof without a sound check. They went back down the stairs, stairs with a soul check. And I think they needed that moment together to touch upon each other and just realize what they had been, you know, all these years. And uh, I honestly think, too, again, most of the things today, Luke, has just been personal opinions. If we haven't been talking maybe directly about some things, uh, more, you know, opinion type things. But I think that that time on the roof is a reason we did get Abbey Road. Because I think there's something about that pulling them back together again to able to do the Abbey Road album. And it's strange for me and for a lot of people that the Abbey Road album is a lot of people's favorite. And it's not the most creative album did. When you especially the body of work they did with Sgt. Pepper and, and all these things. 
but uh, I think there was something special about that day that, that changed changed everything with them. And I think it gave them the chance to be free now because that they'd done that, had that moment together. There's a lot of good music to listen to and celebrate the 50th anniversary tomorrow, the day after this recording. Ken Mansfield, author again of The Roof and all the other books, but if you, especially if you want to get back in the context of, let, of the Let It Be era, literally that month, go read that book. It's a, it's a, it's a good one. Ken, thanks for taking time to chat today about Let It Be. And uh, well, we're all lo- you're looking forward to. I'm looking forward to that Peter Jackson movie, The Beatles Get Back, hopefully on September 4th or whenever it comes out. It'll be great to watch. Thank you uh, for talking to us today and do take care. Thank you, Lou, for having me back. I enjoyed it. Ken Mansfield. I got chills at one point while in that interview thinking about yeah he he literally was talking to paul john george ringo i think it was one point in the interview he was talking about across the universe that that portion of the interview and i think my gosh he was literally talking about that about that the acetate of across the universe with john lennon and i'm chatting with him like just an extra degree of separation there Whew. That was a good interview with Ken Mansfield. Again, if you want to learn about his books, and as he mentioned, he's he's got he's got seven of them. Go to mainmansfield.com. That's M-A-I-N-M-A-N-S-F-I-E-L-D.com. Mainmansfield.com. You can see all the books there, learn more about them, information about them. You can order them directly from Ken Mansfield. And again, the roof, the Beatles final concert came out. Um, about a year and a half ago, came out in late 2018, uh, is the one that's most direct about Let It Be. This has been the latest edition of Got Time for a Quick Story. You can follow this on uh, on your podcast app on on Android or iPhone. However you however you access podcasts, you can also find it on Stitcher and TuneIn and Spotify. Uh, subscribe to the podcast, rate it up so that uh, more people can hear about this podcast for future interviews. Also, as always, thanks to my employer, Greatest Hits 98.1 Radio in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, for providing facilities to do these interviews. And you can listen to this interview as well, along with the prior Ken Mansfield interview and a whole lot of other music-related interviews at GreatestHits981.com. GreatestHits981.com. Click on Interviews, and you can listen to the interviews right there. Got time for a quick story? I'm Luke Anthony.